Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have back on for those, oof, I don't know which time, but join us from Houston, Texas, Sean Palmer. What's up, my man? Hey, Luke. It's good to talk with you. It's, it's um the fourth or fifth time, I think. I don't know. No way. I There's mean, no, it's way more than that. Oh, no, 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 no. You, uh, I was one of the first guests and then... You became super popular and didn't have time for me, and I would write you teary letters about how I needed to be back <laughs> on the podcast for my oh, ego's sake. And you would say, well, I've got NT right this week, and then <laughs> me and my friend Pete Enns are going to hang out, uh, and then mm. the Pope's coming on my show, and then we're going to go hang yep. out with Stephen Colbert. And it was all, you yep. know. Yep. So yep. that's I'm exactly just, what I'm happened. i glad that you remembered that you had my number. <laughs> Sean, how could I forget you? I can never forget you. You, I mean, like you said, first guest, and uh, and um, I, I think the whole success, whatever level of success I've had on the podcast, is all because of the trajectory that you started us on. So thank you for that. Yeah, I think the success is well. I had a legitimate question for you as <laughs> as a as the master podcaster that uh, the entire okay. industry looks to. Oh, wow. And so looking, I don't know if good. you have shared this with um, the folks that asked you questions like Mark Marin. Um, <laughs> <and laughs> I don't know if you share your wisdom, um, you know, uh, but what percentage of the books whose authors you interview, this, this is truth time for, for okay. all of your listeners. Okay. All right. What percentage of the books do you read? Because I would bet that it's much higher than people suppose. That I read more than people think I read? Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I, I try to do my best to, to understand the content of the book that someone writes. And I, I don't ask someone on unless I really am interested in their book, for the, for the most part. I mean, uh, six or seven years into this, it's hard to say, like I've read every book, but I feel like uh, I've, I've read a pretty good amount. I mean, I just... Because I, I quit hosting a podcast like two years ago, and publishers <laughs> still send me books. And and I'm like, huh, all right. <laughs> yeah, there there are a lot of books that come in that I wish I would have read and had people on the podcast about. And there, But yeah, a lot books always are coming in the mail. And I... I'm at that point where I don't really know what to do with all the have, books. Have I f- you had this experience? This is my experience. I bet uh, you may have experienced something similar unless you were just a, a better person than I am by that's, large that's, leaps and bounds, which is possible. But Yeah, I mean, like, we're all... <laughs> um, would you take books to half-price books because the pile has gotten no, super no, high? No. You've I never feel, done this. Okay, I feel like it's like a flag that you're, you don't throw... Like, you're not supposed to... How do you get rid of a flag? You can't like sell a use fl- exactly. You yeah. can't just put it in the trash can. I feel like taking a book to half price books not only uh, prevents someone from getting like an original book purchased, right. but it but it also reveals that like most of these books have some sort of label on them that says like advanced release or something like that. Right. And so it, it um, no can't do it. Well, never never once done it. I've I've taken books to half price books, <laughs> and because. Um, I, I like money more than books that I haven't read. Oh. And so, um, but I buy but that, new books when I'm there. I always use the money to buy a brand new book because people don't realize they actually sell new books, half new price books. New books, sir. And I have had, I've been told by the guy, you know, who calls your name and says, this is your offer. And they will say, <laughs> they will say um, uh, Mr. Palmer, we can't 
offer you any money on these books because they haven't been released yet. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. And, you know, that's, anyway. That's rough. Some, and that's often because sometimes I'll get, I only really do that if I've been sent to, and if mm-hmm. there's not someone I can immediately think of that I can kind of gift that book. Give it to him. Wow. Wow. You know, one of the things about uh, snakes is that snakes will sometimes eat other snakes. And I feel like as an author, selling books to half price books is kind of cannibalistic. I'm I'm just saying well, I, I love it, you and all so I've I've sent you books of mine and if and I, I hear that them. have you taken I, them to half price books? I have not. Okay, all right. I, but it, but it, I have I I did see Jonathan Stormont's book on the <laughs> shelf at half price books. <laughs> not what very city? from where not very far from where I live. In Houston. Okay. Mm. Wow. And um and and so I bought it, even though I had two copies of it. That's the right thing to do. Yeah, that's the I, right thing to do for your friend. But people should realize when you take your book to half price books, the author gets nothing. No, of that, right? So I I feel like one person specifically should know that, and that's you. Like I feel like you need to tell yourself that. I like well, I I don't know if this. I don't know how to process this. Is uh, very disarming. But what I want to say as an Enneagram three, you being this confessional and forthright with me, even though you know what you're doing is very deplorable. I want to say thank you for making this brave step, and this is really admirable of you to do that. Do well, you uh, go ahead? Do you do you feel like as an Enneagram three, you're uniquely gifted to survive this wearing a mask thing because you've been doing that for four decades now? <laughs> four and a half decades. <laughs> mm. uh, oh man, let me tell you. Here's the here's the beauty about being a three. So your your passion is deceit, right? But uh-huh. once you see the truth, you can never unsee the truth. And I'm a mm-hmm. self-pressed three. So a house full of books is not as helpful as a house full of money. So I will take <laughs> <laughs> Oh goodness. Well, so, okay. All right. Well, preserve yourself. I you know, but I here's respect the thing. That. I, look, most folks out there aren't buying books to begin with. Yeah. I you know, I and I will buy like your book. I have multiple copies of your book. One, because you sent me one at the beginning of pandemic, and then I wasn't allowed to go to the office to get mm-hmm. it because we shut down the office. So you sent me another one to my house. Yep. But then, because I support authors, particularly authors I, I know, I will, always, I will always buy their books. So you don't, you, my friends actually don't have to send me a free book um, because I will buy their book just to, to be helpful See? to them. Wow, and this is why this is why we started the podcast off with you because 2014, when you first came on, the goal was for someone to talk to the listeners about the importance of buying my book, and you just did that, and that this is what we've been trying to get to <laughs> all along, all along. Buy yeah. Luke's book. <clears throat> there it is. There it is. And when you st- hey, but do they know this? The book that you just re- most recently released. Um you had written a version of before you started your podcast. Uh, Yeah. You know, around the same time. And I actually read that. Ooh, how can, hmm. and still had a copy of it. That's terrifying. Oh goodness. So that's like, people want to know like how, how long did it take you to write a book? That's how long 2014 before that I had started working on this idea because it takes a long, well, at least for me, 
uh, it takes a long time for idea to really become what it needs to. The idea of someone having that early of a draft of this idea is terrifying to me because uh, I would hate for most most of those things to be revealed in public that early of a writing. Well, there you go. I just told yeah. everybody. Yeah, don't don't. D- don't share that. And, Don't take that to you, half price books. And if if you want the early version of Luke's <laughs> book, you can send me fourteen ninety nine, <laughs> and I will email you the copy that he sent to me. However okay. long ago that was. Well, you are a monster, and I'm going to befriend <laughs> you, and so we can keep on doing this podcast. And let's pivot right now before this gets worse. We can um, talk about and, baseball like David Bentley Hart. Oh goodness. <laughs> You can't talk like about baseball right 40, now. 40, 45 minutes on baseball. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, yeah, that 17-minute preamble on baseball was, was pretty strong. Now, as a Houston Astros fan, uh, the conversation we would have about baseball would be a little different uh, than maybe with him. Well, because he's not used to winning? or Well, no. I, <laughs> I guess at... at Maybe Ecclesia, you're used to like when it's time for you to change a subject, you like someone bangs on a trash can in the back. We do that every week, actually. Like, yeah. that's just a um, Houston way to do things. Like, so you know uh, what version of which sermon you're getting. Just someone stands at the back <laughs> and bangs on a trash can. We give everybody these little electrodes, and when they put them on, <laughs> and when the when, um, when they buzz, that's when you know to laugh at the joke, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like. You know, so instead of having an because an applause sign would be you know tacky. Yeah, that'd be excessive. But you can just buzz. You, you've been uh, pretty busy, even though you've actually haven't been in person and you actually don't have people that you're preaching to anymore. You guys are uh, virtual worship services until August, right? Isn't that the? That's the, the current plan. Yeah. Yeah, and th- so. I've asked you before, it's like, so is your Sunday easier because you preach 20 plus Sundays a year? Is that right? 30? 20, 30? Um, the, the last count, last year I did 27 uh, yeah. weekends. So we have on our downtown campus, we have five gatherings on the weekend. And then our West Side campus, we have two gatherings. So a total of 27 weekends. Which means... So. That there's 27 when you're not. And so I was asking you, I was like, man, I, I wonder if, like, are things slowed down? But you've been even busier in the last couple of weeks, right? Yeah, so we did, we're doing something that's kind of old school. We just thought about, since we can't um, have our gatherings, you know, and the big, the big challenge on campus is getting everybody on and off, right, for different gatherings. So yeah. that prohibits things like Bible class. Mm-hmm. Well, this... A, a traditional Bible class, like if you grew up in you mm-hmm. know a normal sized church someplace, and so we thought, well, what if we did that on Sunday morning? Because we have had for years people asking questions about, hey, I'd like to study this book, or I'd like to know more about mm-hmm. the Bible, and we just haven't had avenues to do that. So we um, have started those, and they meet in between the two worship because we run our worship yep. services still at nine and eleven on Sunday. Um, but also after each one of those, we have zoom gatherings for people to come in. We break them out into little smaller groups. They get pastoral care, prayer, a chance to connect with people. And we have something that happens almost every night during the week. So there's, a, uh, there's a gathering called be still, um, on Tuesday nights, which is everything at Ecclesia is always very liturgical anyway, but that's more quiet. We have Vespers on Wednesday night. We have um, small group meetups throughout the week on all sorts of different subjects. Um, our our student ministry meets every day, like 
my daughters are in junior and high school, so they're in part of our student ministry. So even today, they're meeting. They met at 2 o'clock today, and they'll meet at 7 o'clock tonight. We're doing a virtual camp for our kids <laughs> next week, virtual teen camp. Jeez. Like My daughters got this. Two of them got – both of them got this, this huge package in the mail last night, and it's all of the stuff for camp, like all of the supplies for camp, everything they need to – like. Well, that's crazy. Um, these cards, you know, things that they're going to make and do, T-shirts that they'll tie-dye. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, I mean, it's just – I've never seen a group of people, and I just want to give a shout-out to our staff. I've never seen a group of people be so creative given, yeah. like, all of our tools are just digital. So, anyway, yeah, so it's, yeah. it's a really busy time. Yeah, and so it's become uh, an environment that just requires people to be creative because things just aren't what they used to be. Everything's different, and – in light of this context, the um, the way that you know the social unrest, the the social you know anger, the the response to George Floyd, all that has kind of popped up. In what I I don't know if it there's a more inopportune time, but it's definitely a very uh, inconducive time to have these sort of conversations and spaces for that as a church. I, I know one of the things you've been doing. I guess one of the Bible classes. Uh, what's Tisby's book? Is that, uh, what is his name? Yeah. So one of our discipleship groups on Sunday morning is we're walking through Jamar Tisby's book, the color of compromise, which Mm -hmm. is just a historical look at the American church. And kind of central to that idea in the book is that when it comes, when it came to racial issues that American Christians, um, have made decisions and compromises and that our current state of affairs racially in America, isn't the result of something that was inevitable or had to happen, or some outgrowth of something someplace else, that these were actually decisions. And not just mindless decisions, that there were alternative options on the table at the time. And consistently throughout history, American Christians have chosen um, the more racialized decision over the more Christian decision to maintain um, a racial caste system to maintain slavery. And it didn't just happen way back when, 400 years ago, um, mm. that it's been a consistent method of operation in the American church. And it's been really helpful for people just to get that sort of historical overview. And honestly, it only looks at black, white um, racial issues. And there are a whole lot of others, um, yep. Native Americans and all of that. So um, I think our group of people who are walking through it, and I limited that class, I limited that group to about 150 because that's as many as we can handle um, responsibly in a discussion format. Um have found it really helpful and useful. So yeah, that's one of the things we're doing. Speaking of books that came in that I wish I would have had time to read uh, back in 2019 when, when it came out, that's one of them. And so I opened that, uh, my copy of that book this week and started to skim through a little bit of it. And yeah, I found it very meaningful. One of the stories that I, I found really compelling is about uh, Whit, Whitfield, George Whitfield, the, mm-hmm. am I getting the name right? From uh, the revivalist from what, 300 years ago, where Early on, it's yeah, one of the arguments that Tisby was making is that early on he was he spoke against racism, slavery to some degree, and then as he was opening an orphanage, he needed funds to make this uh, fledgling organization work, and so that's he got a plantation, got a couple hundred acres, and then he got um, got a, his first slave. Then because it was a pragmatic decision to keep basically to keep the lights on of this orphanage, and w- one of the things that's really compelling about that is where racism isn't simply born out of like hatred, but just out of 
selfishness. Like my own self-survival is based on pushing someone else down. And you would think that like racism is just, oh, I hate these people, but it's more just very pragmatic of, I got to keep the bills on. I got to keep things going. Yeah, that's, and what people forget, and I don't know if you've read Luke, um, Edward Baptiste's book, The Half Has Never Been Told. No. Um, but what Baptiste does in that book is basically say, by the time the Civil War finally rolls around, slavery accounts for over one-fifth of American prosperity. It was entirely hmm. economic, uh, economically driven decision. And you will see that reflected in things like Jefferson Davis's inaugural and his second inaugural speech. And what he keeps referring to in those speeches are our way of life connected to our economy. And if you go back and you were to read a lot of the historical literature of the time, slavery was fundamentally an economic issue for enslavers. And um, it was not a, um, it was born out of a dehumanized way of seeing others in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but what sustained it was a, an imagination that did not know what to do economically outside of having slaves. And even to this day, some folks will make the argument, both in the United States and in Great Britain, that you had to have some form of slavery um, up until the Industrial Revolution. I don't find a whole lot of um, validity in that argument. I do get where people get it from. I think that is a way that we try to uh, baptize the decisions of enslavers by saying, well, they just had to do this. Um, Mm -hmm. But it has been a series of decisions made out of for economic reasons. And I think much of what we see still in the United States is uh, driven by the economics of oppression, especially when you look at things like mass incarceration. We have privatized prisons that have to be filled. Um, The reason, you know, down where I live here in Harris County and Houston, we have somewhere, I think, between three and five thousand inmates in the Harris County jail who are pre-trial who simply can't get out because they can't afford to, right? Um, they, wow. they are, they are basically, um, imprisoned for lack of funds. Um, if you, um, read the, uh, Oh, now I'm blanking on the author. Um, but slavery by another name is a, another mm-hmm. book. And you get a lot of this from, if you were to, um, watch the Anna DuVernay's, um, 13th uh, 13, on yeah. Netflix. Yeah. Um, but imprisonment is slavery by another name. Um, mm-hmm. Because you take a work for an involuntary workforce to prop up an economy. And it's not like the homework hasn't been done on all of these issues. Like it's there in literally in black and white in print for people who want to investigate them. And we can never get away from the fact that what we experience racially is intrinsically and historically tied to economics. And until we deal with the economics of race, we'll never actually deal with the problems of a racialized society. Yeah. Wow. Uh, one of the other great resources that uh, I stumbled into this week was the, uh, the video that uh, the guy from VeggieTales put out. Did you mm-hmm. see that? Uh, I, I forget I his name. But, Bill Vischer. Yeah, Vischer. Uh, so I sat down and had my daughters watch it a couple, couple nights ago. And just to see, wow, this is where we are right now, where it's one decision compiled on another decision that all, like you said, it's, it's a pragmatic decision to maintain a way of life, an economy, uh, to, to keep things going. And as I'm processing that, what I'm realizing is that the racism and the biases that I have 
are not going to be the explicit, like, I, you know, I hate a certain group of people, but the bias I'm going to have is I really like myself. I like my family. I like my way of life. And the decisions that I will make will always be tempted to put my self-interest before others, which is right. antithetical to the way of Jesus. And right. Jesus' constant, almost incessant teaching against materialism would have been a great foundation for preachers to be talking about 30, 40, or excuse me, 300, 400 years ago, as we're imagining the economy taking up this sort of like divine status in our world that needs to be fed over against the, you know, love of neighbor. Right. Yeah. So one of the things I know that you had her on the show previously, but what Christina Cleveland talks about in Disunity in Christ is this idea that human beings are cognitive misers, which basically means that thinking takes up a lot of calories and it's really difficult and you've got a job and kids and family and mm-hmm. traffic and a whole bunch of things to think about. And when your brain can take a break, it really wants to. So what human beings do is when we walk into a room, when we enter into a new life situation, whether we're starting a new job or moving to a new town, we immediately begin to look around. We scan the environment for the people who look most like us. Yep. Because relating to those people is easier because they're more like us and we know ourselves very well. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, um, your brain decides to take a break. And so we end up in these silos, um, not because we have deliberately chosen so, but because we are so incredibly and naturally self-centered. Everyone in the world is self-centered, right? So wherever you're listening to our conversation, other people are in front of you, behind you, to your left or to your right. Like we naturally center ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so you get a population who is very much like one another and they are all centering themselves. And so what they end up doing is centering that whole population that mm-hmm. we're the most important and just extends and extends and extends. This is what Jesus is constantly pushing out, pushing back against. This is why loving your neighbor as yourself is such a controversial, if we were to actually do it, and hard thing for people to, to actually love my neighbor as myself, to see people as my brother and sister, to see their children as my children. Um, hardly anyone does that, right? It's just yeah. so um, counter to what comes naturally to us. That's why formation really matters yeah. because you're not going to do it on your own. And we, th- I mean, I would like for us to have a conversation about how would you know that you are loving your neighbor as yourself, um, you won't even let someone merge in front of you in traffic, right? Like uh, (laughs) um, we push people out of the way to get on the elevator, right? Like um, human beings just don't consider other human beings. And it's a spiritual problem. It's about time. I think that we really started to face it. And then what happens naturally after that is the people who are in the news who look the most like us that we can relate to most easily, those people tend to get our, we assign those people with an inherent goodness yeah. um, that may not have been earned by the content of their character. Yeah. No, I, it seems that centering our own um, normal reality is at, you know, at the heart of you know, what's going on here and what happens with me, what happens with everyone. And, and the consequence of when we center our own experiences is that someone else always gets excluded. Someone else gets pushed down. Uh, I, I, since you haven't been living under a rock, I know you saw the Louis Giglio uh, thing from last, mm-hmm. uh, I guess just a couple of days ago where Lecrae's on the stage and the guy from uh, Chick-fil-A is there. And uh, Louis Giglio refers to the blessing of slavery and it, everyone rightly calls him out for it. He has this uh, almost tear, tearful apology after uh, 
you know, he said it's a terrible phrase, whatever. Uh, it, it was clearly a terrible thing to say. What was most, what was most disturbing to me about that is the way that Lecrae has been dumped on for what, you know, just my amateur opinion, what Louis Giglio seems to be doing is making that phrase white privilege more palatable to his white audience by saying, you know, the blessing of slavery. And he's centering the white experience, the white feelings, the white emotions that are going to be negative if he says white privilege. And the cost of doing that is that Lecrae is the person who he's attacked from both sides. And I was on the phone with our mutual friend, Fate Haygood, uh, just a couple hours ago. And he said, oh, I've definitely been in that same situation. And you're stuck in a lose-lose situation that moment. Sean, I assume you've been in that same situation too, where someone says something wrong and you're either the angry black guy who calls him out or her out, or you're the guy who's going to get the phone call from from other black people and going to go, Sean, dude, what are you doing? Maybe... Yeah, that's a really tough situation to be in, and I would agree with fate and probably everyone else that you have been in that situation where it's like, I'm not sure what exactly I want to say here and what would be useful. And so there are a couple of ways that I interpret Lecrae's involvement in that and what he failed to say and why he didn't say it. And I failed to say it maybe even a little too strong to put it that way because it's not necessarily a failure. Um, Because... I am a preacher fundamentally and that I coach preachers. The first task of a communicator is to gain a hearing, right? So it doesn't matter what you say. If you haven't gained a hearing, if the, if the hearer isn't open to what you have to say. And so there is a role and a place for saying things in ways where your hearer can hear them knowing that you're not going to move any hearer from a to Z in any particular discourse, but you may be able to get them from a to D or somewhere along that line. Yep. But at the same time, like words really matter. And the problem with what Louis Giglio said, and I'm really grateful for his apology. It seemed really sincere. I don't know him. I grew up in Atlanta. Um, Him being in Atlanta, which is a town just, um, intensely populated with African-Americans that he has been able to pastor this long and to be this unfamiliar with why that would be an awful thing to say. And so we're dealing with so many things like one, um, I don't know him. He may know every resource and have read every book and had every conversation under the sun's able to have, but to say something like that seems to me that he just hadn't done the homework and because, hey, I lead a big church and I'm a great leader, I'm going to jump into a fray unprepared. And I, that was problematic. Yep. Um, then how could you, you know, why is Dan Cathy up there? <laughs> um, <laughs> I didn't even ask that question, but yeah, there is. <laughs> like what? You know, it's, um, yeah, so I was like, why, why, why are we even? Why are you having this conversation in this space with these people? And you've put Lecrae in an incredibly bad spot because what's he supposed to say? Like, uh, no, it's not a blessing. I mean, I, it would have been, it would have been great. But what? It would have been great if he would have said, like, let's unpack what a blessing is. Um, are is theft, rape, and murder a blessing? Like, if you receive a benefit Ooh. that is inherently descended from theft, rape, and murder, is that a blessing? Or is that blood money? And if you have blood money, you have a different responsibility than you do when you have a blessing. So it would have been, might have been interesting to have that, but I also don't know what their relationship was like. There are tons of people 
who might be able to say something to me, like in a public forum, like you being one of them. Um, like if this interview yeah. were happening in a public forum where you would say something and I would say, well, Luke's, Luke's a friend of mine. We've known each other for a long time. This thing that he said concerned me. I'm going to talk to him about it later because I wouldn't want to not only say I wouldn't want to be like I wouldn't be concerned about being like the angry black guy or whatever. But I'd say like I'm not going to embarrass Luke. Exactly. Yeah, that's a tough spot because I know you would as a friend you don't want to embarrass someone in that. Yeah, for sure. So like I don't see what Lecrae did as a problem or not. And also, man, and you know this from being an author, and I think we just need to talk honestly about it. When you are a public figure, you have multiple pressing issues on you at any given time and you are representing the interest of a lot of people Mm -hmm. right and sometimes those interests are personal in particular in terms of relationships and sometimes like there are dollars behind it and like there are publishing companies there are recording companies and before you go off and say something that you might regret you want to think through it pretty significantly so you don't become a louis giglio right so you don't say something that you shouldn't have said so i would always kind of err on the side of saying less rather than more particularly if i had a relationship with the person who said something that i found really problematic because that could be easily cleared up later at least in the interpersonal space yeah um yeah i mean that's such a tough situation for lecrae to be in i i feel so bad for him in the way that he's gotten the negative negativity from this because there's like you said there's a plethora of things going on um one of the <coughs> excuse me one of the things that uh i've had multiple friends say to me is that black friends say to me after george floyd is well, it's just another day like this is just uh it, it's not a new experience it's not something new that's going on and in some ways this situation where a centered white experience affects a black person makes a black person deal with ramifications which maybe aren't fair for them in my opinion they're not but what does my opinion matter uh where it just uh, same song different verse going on and on again right Mm. Mm -hmm. right so we um I, i i'm imagining they're saying that to you because you're having conversations with them where you are introducing into the conversation something that sounds like Hey man, I just wanted to reach out to you, see how you're doing. I yep. know that there's a lot going on. Like those, um, I've gotten a lot of those. Rochelle's gotten a lot of those in the last couple of weeks. We've gotten emails and messages from people who say like, "Hey, I remember things that I don't remember." People mentioning to me things that happened in the '90s, right? That's like you said this, and I didn't believe you, and like I'm really apologetic. And there's a certain level where I really appreciate that. Um, what is more helpful for folk for white allies isn't to call your friends who are people of color, but to call out your white friends. Yeah. Like what's more helpful to me is the next time you're in an all white space and someone says, whatever, you know, that's the time to speak up Hmm. um, rather than just, just to call me. So like I, I sent to my friends this little cartoon that I found, uh, online and it's it depicts two young african-american women and they're like putting together a black lives matter poster obviously getting ready to go depicting them getting ready to go to a march and one of them's phone is ringing and her friend asks her if she's going to answer it 
And she responds, oh, that's just one of my white friends calling because they think racism is new. <laughs> right. Uh, that's tough. Mm, yeah. No, I think that uh, the, hey, I'm sorry for everything you've been through from a white person is, uh, yeah, what, what we're looking for here is change. And change requires hard conversations. And when you're in white spaces to say things that uh, need to be spoken up about. W- one of the things that's tough is in, so here's a tension that, that I'm wrestling with. O- on the one hand, the most compelling thing that leads to change is personal story. If you want something to change, you hear someone's personal story about their experience. For me saying that, you know, the black experience is different than a white experience. I can say that's how I'm blue in the face. It won't move the needle as much as someone saying X, Y, and Z happened to me. This is what it's like for me and my family. This is what it's like for my kid. This is, you know, and so in white spaces, there's a desire. Let me hear first person experiences of black people right? Because that's very compelling, and that helps people have a new perspective. The the flip side of that is, it's not black people's job to educate white people. And calling a black person, say, we want you to come to this white space and do for us what we could do for, we could educate ourselves, we could read the book, we could watch the movie, we could listen to the podcast, all all these different things ourselves, and not make black people have the responsibility of being the voice of reason and justice and equality. How do you think those is there a way that that tension can stand together as you process that, Sean? Well, I'm, I'm mindful of several years ago, my friend Ben Chikaris at Mountain Christian Church outside of Baltimore was leading his predominantly white church um, through some racial issues that he thought were really important. And the first step in that was to educate himself and their lay leaders, mm-hmm. right? And they spent a lot of time, they brought people in and I mean, they, they read all the books, they consulted with people behind closed doors. And like, I was kind of t- on the tail end of that. They had me come into their, ch- their church and, um, and teach one weekend as they were got to roll out some of their changes. I like the way that they did that because it wasn't grandstanding. And when people say, I like, um, the temptation in the church is to do something that serves as a veneer of engagement with the issues, but really isn't. Mm-hmm. And so like, I'm going to invite these people in to come speak or talk and educate sort of in, in mass to the whole church. There's really not going to be any underlying change. I th- actually think you have to talk with people. You have to learn from people who are experts in the subject, mm-hmm. but to do it in a serious way. There are people who make who their full-time job is diversity and inclusion. And when organizations call them and ask, will you come work with us and put some time and dollars behind it, those folks always say yes, right? Because that's what they do and they're experts. That's really different than sending like the one black person you know that's in your field adjacent 15 messages saying, can I have 30 minutes of your time? I want to ask you some questions. Like in the last two weeks, Luke, I have given 30 minutes of my time to 150 different people um, because I'm interested in the, what God is up to in his kingdom. But I don't think the average person who it, who's just friends with some white people, like that's what that will, that's becomes annoying because it is, um, it is wanting to borrow someone's story in a vicarious and empty way. 
Hmm. So it is kind of a racial healing pornography where we want the gratification of engagement without the investment in um, engagement. That's, um, that's pretty indicting and pretty accurate. It is, it's empty, right? Like you, you want the appearance of it, but you don't get the actual real connection from it. Wow. Yeah, I see exactly what you're saying. I'm probably not going to call it racial porn or whatever you just referred to it as racial healing pornography yeah we'll we'll let you stick with whenever that's and, your term yeah and people get mad when i use that term and that's fine but whenever you want gratification without commitment like that's what it is i, I mean i i got the metaphor the first time i didn't need more <laughs> more details on it like i get i get I it. it i get it yes so don't say it again but like i, yeah, I, I, get, I want, fo- I want <clears throat> folks riding along in the car with their kids to have heard it twice yeah that's 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 nice thanks Thanks, Sean. You can find him on Twitter at. Um, so the the empty is the empty sort of racial healing is we're going to bring you. This is tokenism, right? Like we're going to bring in the the black speaker to our church, and they're going to talk about race, and we're all going to be feel really nice, and some of us are going to feel the need to go up afterwards and say, you know, this racist thing that happened to us, and while we you know feel bad, and you know that's terrible, or we're going to confess years ago that we were racist and we did this and this, and so there's like this sort of uh, cathartic experience, but the real change has to be. Uh, not just tokenism, but in- inclusion in a degree in which there's actual participation in the life of the community, which is difficult when you have a lot of churches that are not as diverse as uh, the kingdom of God. Right. And like all of those things, like the lack of diversity in our churches isn't an accident, right? So especially if your church has been planted yeah. in the last 30 years. Um, if your church has been planted in the last 30 years and it is predominantly white, it is likely that one of the guiding principles of how and where that church was planted was the homogeneous unit principle, which basically said that if you diminish differences between people, mm-hmm. then that helps churches grow faster. And so let's not ever talk about things that are contentious, that are conflictual. And if we can get, a, let's just get enough of people who are like one another that they will like one another and come back. Mm-hmm. And you can draw a straight line from the homogeneous unit principle where we don't talk about things that are important to Louis Giglio's inability to talk about things that are important. Like he, there have been no conversation partners. Um, there have been no people, no relationships of trust that have been built in 30 years. And so, of course, when there's a flashpoint in the culture and we have to talk about this, we don't have the tools for which to talk about it. Yeah. Because we have, we have deliberately de- avoided talking about them for the entire life of the church. Yeah. And the same thing happens when a church decides that this neighborhood is changing and we need to move someplace else, usually someplace that's white. Um, be- and we will say it's because uh, property values or whatever it is, that, that whatever lie we tell ourselves when we do these things. Um, but it's really about, hey, we, you know, if we stay here, this will cease to be in a certain term of years, a white church. Mm-hmm. And so, and that's what we really want. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so w- without massive investment in relationships, none of this will ever change. And not just, I've got one black friend relationships. I've got one Hispanic friend relationships that this church is making a commitment to function with people in a fundamentally different way that's more reflective of what God is doing in the kingdom 
than the American marketplace where we slice and dice people up and this is our share and this is our target. Yeah. Yep. And it's going to require a lot more work than what we want to put into it. Because like you said, no, no one has to be on their best behavior when it's a homogeneous congregation. If you have a, a 90% white church, you have 10% who have to be in their best behavior all the time. But the other 90%, this is their world. They can act that way. The true racial healing requires us to, you know, all bring more to the table. One of the things like you're saying is that it's really telling that now it's to some degree in vogue for white preachers to talk about race. And we're seeing that some of us have not done our homework and all of those, you know, like it's like the high school football player, like all those times that you're supposed to be working out in the summer, it, it's now Friday night, the Friday night lights are on and you didn't do your legs. You didn't do enough squats. You didn't do enough deadlift. You didn't do enough running and you're out of gas. You have nothing to say. And I, I think what, what's happening is we're being exposed for those of us who feel the need to talk, even if we probably shouldn't be talking, that we haven't read the books. We haven't had the conversations. It's uncomfortable for us to talk about race because we haven't had any race conversations with people who look different from us over all these years and now we're seeing it so uh yeah it's um it's a tough time um but we gotta do better well i mean and i'm, I'm glad that people want to like and so i don't want to i don't want folks to hear me saying that it's necessarily a lost cause but i do think that this is and i am you know me luke like i i dislike language policing um I am for more free speech and more voices in the room almost always. Um, but there are times, um, <laughs> you know, um, I, I'm in the middle of writing a book right now and there are sections that I get to and I need to, to put in some more work in the writing phase and I have to stop and go, I don't know enough about this yet to write intelligently. Yep. So I've got I've to push pause on that piece and go do some homework before I can come back and say something that's yep. that's helpful and coherent. And and that's why you got a copy of my my current book in 2014. Cuz there's <laughs> stuff that I wanted to write about but I didn't have it. Like I didn't understand right. the ideas weren't together yet and some some things you can't just put in the microwave and fast track it and get something at the end that's going to be what you want it to be. So yeah. Um, it takes time. Takes patience. Yeah. So, so like someone like Louis Giglio knows why his church will bristle at white fragility, mm-hmm. right? But he doesn't know why uh, the guild that works on racial equality and racial justice has come to the term white fragility. And there's actually a philosophically coherent reason. Right, hmm. that the terms are what the terms are. Like no one was just walking down the street one day and just said, "Let's call white people fragile." <laughs> like that just didn't happen, <laughs> right? And that's what shows when you don't when you haven't done your homework. And so I, you know, my prayer is because I live because I'm from Atlanta. I want good things for my my home city. Is that that folks involved in that conversation that that he would take the long view, which I think is going to be really hard for a lot of people now. Yeah. Um, take the long view of where do we go from here? Yeah. Well, that's encouraging that uh, you know some of us who don't uh, who, who haven't done our homework, we don't need to talk right now. We can learn, we can listen, and uh, we can gain some insight before we feel like it's the need to open up our mouth and, and to share something. Because as uh, a proverb once said, it is better to be silent and to be thought of as a fool than to open your mouth and to prove you're a fool. There you go. Remove all doubt. Yeah, remove all doubt. That's that's yeah. that's said better. Give me six years and I'll have that right. 
That's because that's my timeline of things. Was that was that Lincoln or Mark Twain? It was yeah. It was uh, it was actually uh, their their shared cousin. You don't know this. Twitter told me that uh, they have a cousin together. It's, was he a Norsworthy? Uh, yes, his name is Luke. distant cousin. Yes, distant cousin from a different mother. But uh, Sean, you're back on the podcast. It's great to have you on. Uh, when you get that uh, that book out, we'll have to have you back on. And um, I look forward to um, seeing October six. But you can pre order now. Oh, so. there it is. Pre order. Give give us a title. 40 days on being a three. So for all of your Enneagram aficionados. Mm-hmm. And so if you are a three or you know and love, work alongside, mm-hmm. live with a three, this would be helpful. As I'm telling people, it's like 40 sessions of sitting with me in therapy. Yeah. So also, there you have so it. if you're three, you love a three, you know a three, or you're ever going to drive to Highland Park, Dallas, uh, you need to read this book. <laughs> Because that's basically a three, as three as you can get. So uh, it's a great resource for all that. There you go. Get a copy of that one. Don't don't go to half price books, even though it would kind of be karma if that happened to you, Sean. But we're not going to do that. Give it as a gift. <laughs> there, to there you go. Buy three copies. I want everyone to buy three copies. It's fitting. It's fitting. All right, Sean. It's been great. For Thanks for being back on. With Norris, we'll talk to you. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.